Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is the show where we share cutting edge strategies on acquiring leads and sales to acquire more customers so you can achieve your vision. And today, Qasem Aslam, we have a special guest who's been here on Perpetual Traffic many a time, but also, well, owns, runs, organizes everything on the marketing side of the equation for Chair 11, but also has his own podcast, which is the Customer Acquisition Show. If you haven't gone over to check that out, you should, because you will just get more of the guy that's going to be on here today. So if you like Tom, which I know you will, because he's been on here plenty of times and rave reviews every time he comes on the show, definitely check out Customer Acquisition Show because they do that every Friday, as a matter of fact. So more things to listen to to help scale and grow your business so you can ultimately achieve your vision. So Kasim, how is everything in Arizona these days? I mean, here it is no longer 122 degrees every day. It's now cooled down. It's hard to tell, Ralph, because I don't go outside. Oh, so I see. Yes. Yeah. Don't go outside, don't watch the news. So there would be no way for me to know. I thought you did your ice bath thing every morning. I do. Yeah, I do that in the morning. And and the heat's never bothered me. So, you know, when people are like, oh, it's not hot anymore. I'm like, I didn't notice when it was, dude. I'm a desert rat. Well, that's because you're in a bucket of ice. Yeah, there's actually no ice. It's a cooled... Oh. This is interesting. My ice bath is 36 degrees, but there's no actual ice in it. Mm. I would rather do a 36 degree ice bath than a 45 degree ice bath with real ice. Like the cold plunge versus ice bath. Because when the ice touches you, dude, like, goodness. Yeah, it's hard. It's like little knives jabbing into your skin. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Somebody once told me, and this is somebody that actually our guest on today's show knows quite well, Angela, who is a ice bath Wim Hof aficionado. She told me it's actually harder to do like the hot shower and then the cold at the end, which now in Massachusetts, Boston, it's now the cold is actually cold again. I did it this morning and it was freaking freezing because you have to willfully stay under the head of the shower versus submerging yourself in the bath. Do you agree or disagree with that logic? I agree. So when I travel, if I can't get ice for whatever reason, I'll do a cold shower. And cold showers are hard because with a cold plunge, your whole body's submerged. And so you actually have the opportunity to kind of meditate into it. And even though you feel that, I mean, it's almost panic, dude. Like a small mammal is not supposed to be in cold water, right? Like there's two trillion years of evolution right. saying, don't do this. Don't do this. But Stay out. You, you have this chance to kind of get zen with it because you can be still and your whole body is the same temperature more or less. In a shower, you're moving, or at least I am because I need to get my whole body wet and the movement and then the spot treatment just on one part of you and the fact that it's kind of jetting at you, it, even though it's not as cold, it, you, you never get the chance to kind of go zen. And so the mind over matter 
it's just harder. It's harder for me anyway. I find that to be the case. It's more shocking. When I did this, when we were in Dallas for, and Tom, our guest on today's show, will vouch for this. So we were in Dallas. It was like a hundred. It's not Jude Law. No. Uh, well, actually, it's Tom Selleck, but he's he's not. Well, actually, he is wearing a Hawaiian you, you, shirt here you, today. If you're watching this on YouTube, you tell me I'm lying. Tom looks exactly like Jude Law. But more handsome, yeah. He's like, what? But a more handsome more version handsome of, of A-lister heartthrob Jude Law. I agree, Ralph. I'm with you. Well, I can't more... wait to tell my wife that today. She's definitely going to be super thankful that she got so lucky. She's got yeah. She's got what? Let her know. Just be yeah. like... And yeah. she'll say it was it was Cosm and well, Cosm and Ralph were they smoking crack today at noon like they normally do like what's going on so well to check out Tom if he is Jude Law or not Jude Law I say we take a poll in the comments of today's video over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube does Tom look more like Tom Selleck or does he look more like Jude Law that's I think today's question of the day because we're all about the visual part of perpetual traffic here so without further ado let's get into and I forget what our train of thought there was on the ice bath for the shower but you were anyway, in Dallas it was talking about I was in Dallas and yeah the cold was like a spring day in Scottsdale Arizona so it really didn't count it was like hot water and then like warmish water but now in Boston it's cold it's freaking cold here so anyway be that as it may, as we like to say, but we are big believers in the hot, cold changes in order to increase boost immunity, productivity, all that sort of stuff. Talked about Wim Hof here many times. Let's get a real nugget to help people scale and grow their business, Kasim. What's your nugget today before we get into today's show with Tom? So this is my favorite prompt of all time. I use it 500 million times a day. I have the propensity for flowery language. No. Which, yes, which stems from deep insecurities. Never noticed. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem is, and I think the person who's best at this in the world right now is Alex Ramosi. The more simply you can say something, the better you are at communicating, period. Which means I'm a horrible communicator because I love to dress it up. So I go to ChatGPT and my favorite prompt is two words. It's simplify this. And then I enter the sentence or the paragraph or the diatribe that I just wrote. And dude, I, I swear to God, I feel myself when ChatGPT pumps back the response, it's a relief. It's like, that's what I was trying to say. And it's so helpful. And I'll do it with everything. Even emails that I'm sending to people, I'm just like, simplify this. And it's still what I'm saying. It's my sentiment. Generally speaking, it's actually my verbiage, even the tone and personality that I've injected into the piece. It's just simple hmm. or simpler. And sometimes, and this is where the pro tip, the nugget within the nugget, Ralph, the meta nugget, if you will, mm -hmm. nugget squared, mm. shall we mm. keep going? Yeah, very meta. Sometimes I'll take ChatGPT's output and I'll do it again and I'll say, simplify this. Or I'll ask, can you simplify this further? Can you make this simpler? And communicating, and do this with ad copy, by the way, try doing it with ad copy. Because again, if you can communicate simply like this is how people, you're supposed to communicate to people on a seventh grade level. Mm -hmm. So I really like to simplify this prompt and I use it for everything. So is it fair to say that this prompt is best for bombastic, hyper-locutory, magniloquent individuals such as you, but then- GoogleThesaurus.com, Ralph. <laughs> redundant, garrulous, grandiloquent. Did I use grandiloquent already? That's one of my favorite words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe I should actually do that just based upon vocabulary here. But 
it works better for those people who want to sound really smart, kind of like you have the tendency to self-effacingly have said that this is part of the issue. But this is a problem. It can work not just for that archetype. It can be just for people that just want to simplify their language, like Alex Hormozzi does exceedingly well on his YouTube channel, especially. Yeah, well, even if you if you take four sentences to say something that can be said in one, GPT will do that. Mm. It'll take a whole paragraph and just be like, boom, yeah. one line. Simplify so this. simplification isn't just semantic architecture. It's also overarching narrative, the linguistic structure, the, you know, like in all this shit that I just said could have been simplified further, obviously, clearly. So that's my nugget. So I have a nugget that is a deeper inception to that is Ooh, a nugget inside certain, a nugget. If there are certain people on your team who like to write very long things in Slack, you take <laughs> that over chat GPT and say, simplify, simplify this. this. If you really want to be bold, you can just repost that in as a part of the thread saying, here's a simpler version of what wow. <laughs> I love the self-esteem destruction that we're talking about right now, Tom. Here's how you should have said this if you were not an idiot. Oh my God. That's it so it reminds me of I was working in this office yesterday and my twenty-two year old was sitting over there on Instagram as he is like all day when he should be probably studying. But anyway, he was and a certain someone inside tier 11 came up in my feed with a 17 minute video. And Alex just so happened to know this individual. I'm not going to name any names. I was like, man, wouldn't it be great <laughs> if I could get that down to what he's saying in 17 minutes, like two minutes, three minutes. Like the next next extension to this is like a video version of it. It's almost like, oh, yeah. give me the TLDR of whatever it is that you're saying. That leads me to that next question, which is if you actually put in the prompt of TLDR this for me, would ChatGPT actually do that? I bet you it would. Probably I'm going to try it right now. All right. Well, yeah. all right. we've got a live demo going here while we're actually recording today's show. So we will get to that cliffhanger. Does that nugget of a nugget of a next nugget actually work to simplify your language inside Slack or however you communicate with your team? But I wonder what would happen if you put that 17-minute video into Opus Pro, the thing that we use for like all of our shorts, and Ralph just consumed this content of shorts because it ranks it based off the most impactful ones. That's not... It's entirely possible. Yeah, I would have to like export it and that would take a whole lot of time. But Anyway, today we'll be talking about the Meta Agency Performance Summit that was last week in New York, hot off the presses, five big takeaways that we'll be discussing here today, thanks to Tom Meredith, who is otherwise known as Jude Law and or Tom Selleck, Magnum PI. We're going to get into that right after this quick break. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing 
his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. All right, we are back here with Tom Meredith. And by the way, head on over to perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube. Tell us who Tom looks more like. Is it Tom Selleck? Which, you know, a lot of you 20-somethings aren't going to even know who he is, but that's okay. Google it, Magnum PI, or Jude Law. So that's very, very important poll that we're taking over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube. So before we get into the answer to the question of the prompt, Tom, you had some observations about this very subject, about how to be precise in your communication. Well, it was actually a research study or paper that was dropped by Salesforce maybe a couple of weeks back, where they have developed this prompt that really makes sure that you have a condensed, readable summary of the thing that you want summarized. And they call it the chain of density. And it asks ChatGPT to cycle through and to read through the main article multiple times to see if anything is missed in the summary and if there's flowery language to get rid of it and to keep going through that until you have the most dense, readable thing possible. Hmm. Yeah, well... I think the more clear you can be in your communication, I think the better. <laughs> and that's, that's what we need to get on with the show here. <laughs> and Kasim, what was the end result of the TLDR prompt? So if you're watching on the perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube, I'll share my screen here. You can see these were notes that Ralph dropped into chat for our discussion today. Notes are very shorthand. One might say lazy. And I went in and said, TLDR this for me and dropped in Ralph's notes, which are robust. And the summary is a thing of beauty. Now, here's my real question for you, Ralph, is you're, you wrote these notes. I didn't. How well actually. do you think? Oh, you didn't? No, this was Tom's summary, uh, which looked really pretty inside Slack, by the way. So it didn't translate well from Slack. So Tom, the question is for you. How well do you think the summary from a functional perspective, how well do you think this worked? I like, think- Is this a good summary? It's not a good summary. It's good talking points for uh, perpetual traffic. Mm. Is this valuable to you as somebody who wasn't there? I'm not trying to be argumentative. I think as much as this is. Doesn't give me a whole Did lot of... Did you read of... either of them? Yeah. No. But here's <laughs> here's the thing. Yeah. It feels more accessible than... It's so funny, right? It's just an indictment on formatting, I guess. I should see the Slack version is what I need to compare it to. Yeah. The Slack version was pretty because it had bullet points and everything else. We just copied and pasted that into the chat and then put it into ChatGPT. 
But yeah, I would agree with Tom. It doesn't give me a whole lot. I want a little bit more detail. But a wall of text to a TLDR, I think, is helpful from a high level. It certainly is a good frame for a show, which is basically what we are going to use that frame, sort of, kind of, as today's show. The cool thing about that TLDR is you could drop that back into ChatGPT and say, explain these concepts to me. And it would go through and find the information that's out there and explain it to you. And you can have it do it in pirate voice if you want. All right. Well, let's do that. Let's get into what you learned at the Meta Performance Summit. I always want to say it's just Performance Summit, but it really is. It's the Meta Marketing Performance Summit. And pirate voice optional, Tom, really. Like if you wanted to do your summary today in the pirate voice, you could. But I don't know, it might tire out the listener a bit. But what did we learn here? I'd love to do an entire episode in the pirate voice. Maybe that's something else they can drop into the into the comments in our YouTube channel. I once did an episode, complete side note here. I once did an episode early on. I think it's like episode 30 or 37, 40 in my Sean Connery voice. So... I'll have to leave a link in the show notes to that one. Yeah. So Meta Marketing Performance Summit was in New York last week. And this was a summit just for agencies about what's going on right now with Meta. And surprise, surprise, Tom, one of the big things that they talked about was AI, which I'm sure you'll get into here. And it's the answer to everything, of course, at this point. But uh, give us a little bit of an intro, like how it kind of flowed, like what were the big talking points so we can get into the specifics of what it means to you as the marketer out there as a perpetual traffic listener. Yeah. So that's actually like literally the first line they started with is AI is the answer, which I thought was a little flippant for as complex as the whole thing is and how many different aspects go into it. But it really kind of comes down to a, like two key things that Meta's machine learning needs to be successful for us. Uh, and that is flexibility and fuel. And everything within this summit was about flexibility and fuel. So if you think about flexibility, that's really making sure that the machine learning has, or the machine has the ability to try things to find the most optimal path of conversion. So that looks like stuff like you taking advantage of the full advantage suite, giving a lot of creative diversity so that it can put the right thing in front of the right person at the right time. If you think of fuel, of course, there's ad spend and they want more of that fuel. But there's also the first party data that they're very strong on and going even deeper than just Cappy. So I guess when I looked at this summary, I was like, what's new? Because we did a show where we sort of gave a debrief and it wasn't too long ago that Meta had another one of these performance marketing summits. It wasn't solely agencies with a lot of like individual businesses and so forth. This was specifically focused on agencies, which I think Meta is smart about the fact that agencies are the conduit in which they can spread the word far more quickly on what their motives are, what they want to push to the outside user in order to enhance performance. And I think it's smart in that way. Google doesn't do it. I don't know why Google doesn't do it because, I don't know, as smart as they are, they just don't seem to get this. But Meta has gotten this and I think it's great. So I see there was a fair amount of overlap between the content of the one that I went to and then the one that you went to when I was deathly ill with COVID last week. The point is, is what was new that came out of it? What were the big things that you said, okay, that's going to now change how I run my ads or think about marketing you know, within the marketing department of tier 11? Like, What were those big takeaways? 
Well, I, I think the main difference between the two summits is who the audience was. And in the performance one, they were actually talking to the brands and the advertisers. Here, they were talking to agencies because the same thing we all do, we need influencers to add to our authority and the authority of our message. Some of the big takeaways I had as running the marketing department here and a lot of stuff we do on Meta is, for me, data is number one. Like, how do we get as much first-party data clean and high quantity over to Meta so that it can continue to optimize our ads. We're doing lots of testing and stuff with our ads right now. And a lot of that success is driven by increasing our EMQ scores, having higher quality data. And then kind of the big thing that I don't know if enough advertisers are taking advantage of is Reels. Like they were talking about the power of Reels for Instagram, not just through advertising, but as a whole. So once they launched Reels, the total amount of time spent on Instagram went up by 24%. And 30% of all time on Instagram is in Reels. So if a brand is not taking advantage of, of course, organic Reels, but advertising using advantage placements and making sure that you show up in Reels, that's like 30% of the audience you're not touching. So that's from a brand looking for the easiest solution coming out of this, it's get on Reels. Yeah, that was a huge point of emphasis and the one that was done a few months back, but now it's even more so. I mean, I think they're just there's more power behind it now. And you mentioned yet another what we've been referring to the fact that there's lots of advantage plus types of campaigns that are coming out. So tell us about advantage is it advantage plus placement or advantage placements? Tell us a little bit about oh, yeah. that. I mean, the Vantage step is really, again, getting to that flexibility, like giving the machine learning flexibility. And basically, they've copied Google Performance Max and a lot of this. So there's advantage audiences. So traditionally, with Facebook, you think of targeting, and that's really narrowing what Facebook does and who they speak to. But now with advantage audiences, you give them that seed, which is saying who you want to go after, and it'll expand upon that to help find more similar people to keep your overall CPAs low. Then there's advantage destination, which is similar to the URL expansion in Performance Max. So you give it the option of different places it can go to have more flexibility in finding the right conversion path. Uh, of course, advantage shopping campaigns. So when it comes to placement and how this affects Reels, the last recommendation that they made at the previous conference was, okay, if you're running a campaign, you should actually create a separate campaign potentially that targets Reels on its own with its own separate creative and obviously creator content. The 9x16, sort of the rectangular video is obviously is a huge component to that. But is that the recommendation now? Like what is placement, advantage placement actually do? Or did they not articulate exactly what the difference is there? My takeaway was the opposite of that. So they talked about Reels advertising in three steps. The first is just turning on ad advantage placements and letting your stuff show up there. They didn't talk about having specific Reels campaigns. And the next step with Reels is creating Reel-friendly content. So thinking of that 9x16 sound on and respecting the safe zones so that you don't interfere with the interface. And then the last step is like actually developing and creating reels as ads, things that are highly engaging and educational, similar to TikTok's line of don't create ads, create TikToks. What are safe zones? I didn't understand that part. So if you are on your reels and you look at the interface, so you have the top section, you well, want to make margins, sure that... margins, you just mean like the size of the media. It's not the size of the media, it's the where you place the action and any sort of text so that it doesn't get 
covered by the interface. So the like and share and the caption. This is why when I'm moving the image around, if I go too high or too low, it shows me that little line and then allows me to line up with it. Yeah. I ignore that line. I'm not very good. (laughs) I'm not very good at reels. You're not very good at following instructions. It's all right. Well, I don't like being put in a box, Ralph. I'm a rebel. So many ways I can go with that statement, but I'm just going to let it pass right now because Tom's on a roll. So destination is super interesting. I've been wondering whether or not they were going to come out with this. So placement and destination, the last time I was in ads manager, like two days ago, I didn't see either one of these. So I assume these are things that are coming out and not yet in wide release, or am I mistaken here? I haven't seen destinations yet. It's been a few weeks since I set up our campaigns, but we definitely have the Advantage audience, which we're using for our reach campaigns. We have, I think Advantage placements has always kind of been there, just was like all placements before that. I haven't seen an Advantage destination though. Okay. So it's not a separate thing that you're check checkboxing inside the ad set level as of yet. Yeah. I think the meta line would be, if it says Advantage next to it and there's a toggle, turn it on. Right. Of course. Yeah. Let the algorithm do the work, Tom. You know? I mean, I'm the biggest Let fan of the algorithm. Anyway. money for you. I yeah. do it much more efficiently. Well, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. So the Advantage Plus shopping has been one that we've talked about here a couple of times, or actually numerous times here on the show. We talked about it just a couple of episodes ago about putting in all your assets into it, not just your top of funnel assets, but also your retargeting assets, your level two, three, level five, and like let it all figure it out. We've had mixed success with that in some cases and some success in other cases. My sense is that some of the larger brands are using it almost exclusively. Did they give more insights into Advantage Plus shopping and how that is working right now? You know, they always sort of use the larger brands and then it's up to us to sort of figure out, okay, does this translate from the enterprise level all the way down to the mid market and even the small market? They talked about their best brands being like 70% Advantage Plus shopping. And I suspect this comes down to a fuel problem. It's not that Advantage Plus shopping isn't working. It's just there's not enough fuel. So either that's not enough first-party data or not enough ad spend. Can I share something that happened with Google? And I'm curious as to your input, Tom, on whether or not you think it's possible that the same thing will happen inside of the Facebook ecosystem. Yes. When Google rolled out Performance Max... We thought it was a miracle cure for everything because it, that's what the way it looked. Like you turned it on for e-com and it was just like off to the races, unbelievable. The more people that adopted Performance Max, the more competitive it got, the lower the performance. To the point now to where it's actually gone from blue ocean to red ocean. We're migrating away from Performance Max. I'm curious as to whether or not the improved performance people are seeing in Advantage Shopping is a byproduct of the fact that they're first to market and they get first crack effectively. Meta's prioritizing those advertisers, giving them access to more of the inventory, maybe giving them access to higher value inventory and inventory that's not available in Meta networks. And as more people adopt Advantage Shopping, if the performance will drop in direct proportion, And maybe that's an expectation we should manage with people, which means two things. It means one, get in now, get in early while the getting's good. And two, don't be overly reliant on it because if Google is, you know, I mean, we've said a couple of times, Facebook ripped off Google wholesale with Advantage Plus. And if that's true, then it stands to reason that they're going to experience the same faults and flaws. What do you think? I think that's the case with everything. Pays to be in early, more competition there is, the more for inventory, whether no matter what kind of campaign it is, the inventory is still the same across right. Meta Suite, 
of products. And if you're not early, then you're going to pay the price later. Things never get cheaper. So if you're first Mm -hmm. to market or first trying one of these new things, you know, you probably could benefit from some initial cost savings. But over time, you have to expect that the cost is going to go up. And same thing with all their talk about reels. It's fairly new on Instagram and it's only going to continue to grow. But there's not a whole lot of people taking advantage of it. Could the argument be made on the Google side with Performance Max is that the vast majority, correct me if I'm wrong here, Kasten, the vast majority of the inventory that Google was trying to sell and monetize because it was basically just sort of junk with the exception of retargeting is the display network, which the argument could be made that's not quite as high quality of traffic as there might be in the Facebook news feed on Instagram reels, you know, at some point in time, they're going to monetize WhatsApp. So the runway for not only adoption, but effectiveness on performance max was limited just due to the limitations of where the inventory lies. If you're following my line of rationale here, like basically so. traffic on display was always crap. And then they put, Performance Max in, it's like, whoa, now it's great. And maybe all the good inventory on Display Network had a finite lifespan. So that's why it's starting to burn out for you. Could that argument be made? It could. The problem is Google doesn't give us a lot of data on placement. It gives us some. And there's a lot of ways you can reverse engineer it. But it's difficult to see where your ads are being shown. So it's, so it's a really good guess. Oh, dude, it's, it's actually brilliant. It it's is. like, trust me, I, I put it out there. Someone saw it. Won't tell you when, where, how, in what context, or in what way, but it happened. I got you, man. I, 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 yeah. yeah uh, I'm taking care of you. Really? And on a long enough timeline, I actually think Google's going to end up being right in what has to be their assumption, which is they're going to find a way to algorithmically monetize display-based inventory. What they couldn't do is they couldn't give us the interest-based segmentation Facebook did because that results in privacy concerns and antitrust suits. But that would have been the way to improve their display, by the way, because display traffic is, I mean, Facebook's newsfeed is more or less display-based traffic, but Facebook lets you segment. So Google's display network could be more valuable, but they held back and they held back strategically, I think. And now what they're trying to do is figure out how to get the AI to figure out how to get people to buy via display. And I do think they'll crack that code on a long enough timeline. But in the meantime, we're all the guinea pigs and we're paying for Google's R&D. So they're high-end traffic channels, search, shopping, discover certain contexts, YouTube specific campaigns. Google's not withholding, but using sparingly. And with Pmax, you can force people into the higher end traffic channels. This is really interesting, actually. If you don't know this, if you're running Performance Max right now and you're like, I'm not showing up in search or standard shopping the way that I want to, go run a search or standard shopping campaign next to your Performance Max campaign. Here's what's crazy. Those campaigns will experience little or limited visibility, but your Pmax will start to push into search and shopping. So you can force Pmax where you want it to go by telling Google, if you don't do it, I will. Ah. And then Google all of a sudden pushes Pmax into the higher value networks, which again, is just, it's just frustrating. And I think given that Meta is rolling this out, I have a suspicion they're building it in the same way and they're going to come up with, encounter the same issues. And I don't think Google realized they would encounter the dramatic swings in, what do you call it? It's almost inflation. It's like inflation in that the more people that rushed into Performance Max, the more inflationary the environment came maybe not as to the cost of the traffic, but to the value of the traffic or the availability and accessibility of the higher value traffic. 
And I would anticipate the same thing happening with Meta and maybe a little faster because Meta has a fraction of the traffic that Google has. Meta doesn't have this massive display network to push all their crap traffic into. Right. That was kind of my point. But anyway, go go ahead. Keep going. No, I'm, I, I spoke too long. I just, as I heard Tom talking about this, and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but I was like, man, I've heard all this before. You know, I, right. I, I got sold right. this bill of good by Google and I bought it. Not only did I bought it, I resold it. I bought wholesale and I started selling to everybody else. And for two years, we were the Performance Max agency. And now I'm sitting here eating great big bowls of crow every day. It's just interesting to see how the pendulum swings. But it's an interesting hack, though. If you've got a Performance Max campaign that you know isn't getting visibility on search and search being the highest value, search shopping, shopping, then... Standard shopping is super high value. Yeah, and then running a standard campaign with those two placements basically checkboxed, it then forces that I just want to make sure our listener understands like now that forces Google Performance Max to show more or not because it's counterintuitive. Correct. They wouldn't want to dedupe yeah. or maybe they are, maybe they're using the the learning from there. It's like, oh maybe I should be over there. It's like you have to force feel like you have to spoon that would feed be Google's it. explanation. Google's explanation would be like, oh you just taught the algorithm what works. And in my mind I'm like, no, you're trying to sell me the inventory you have the most of. That's it. That's my point. Yeah. Is they're trying to get yeah. rid of the crappy inventory. Right. Like there is a certain portion of display network inventory, which is probably okay. I don't know what portion it is, but I just know, like I've done enough Google advertising, but you know, for retargeting and for just like being everywhere, the everywhere strategy, Google display network. Great. You know, you combine that with ad roll and like a lot of the secondary networks. Cool. You know, we've had Alaric Heck on here talking about it. We both use it. Tom obviously uses it for ad roll. But there's a certain percentage of that display network stuff that just, you ain't going to get a conversion no matter what. Yeah, but I think, again, that's a targeting problem. You know, display inventory is not crap because it's display inventory. It's crap because if a buyer is a buyer, they're a buyer no matter where they are. They could be on a flea market website. But if you put a targeted ad in front of a qualified buyer, I think that targeting is more important than anything. I'll get kicked in the face by Alex Ramosi for saying this. Targeting is more important than message and offer. If I have the right buyer, I can have a diluted message and a diluted offer and still win. But if I have an amazing offer, but I can't target the buyer, what am I doing here? You know, I'm selling size 15 shoes to a toddler. And that's the problem with display-based inventory right now is the targeting is just not, or at least it has not been as segmented as everything else. But that's what Google's trying to do with Performance Max is trying to use AI in order to learn how to make these matches without, and this dude, I just occurred to me, this is so interesting. In order to hurdle privacy concerns, all a company needs to do is say, hey, a person never did this. The computer knows this private thing about you and can connect those dots. And for some reason, we're all okay with that. But the minute it's a person that knows, now it freaks me out. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to teach the computer and and we're paying the cost of it. But I would be careful about disparaging display-based inventory wholesale just because it's display. I think that it can be hyper-quality inventory. I just think it isn't because of the way that it's being treated. Mm. And you have not noticed like any enhancements in the creative side, for example, giving a lift. And I'm not minimizing, like obviously today's talk is mostly on the Meta Performance Marketing Summit, but it goes- It, it like, was until I stole well, the mic, Ralph. Both, like we're talking about Google, damn it. Both, both are related in a lot of ways because advantage yeah. is, and I know our Meta Partner Managers are going to be listening to this, but it's like, this is something that Google figured out. Like, hey, I can do this and make it automated. And Facebook is doing the same thing. Whether they got it from Google, I don't know. But the point is, I lumped them together in the same sort of category because it 
leaves less control for the individual media buyer. My point is, is that, is it because you just need more creative? You need to pump more creative into the Google Performance Max engine. And then that'll Probably. then do the job. Yeah, so, or no, you, you guys have tested that as well. No, this is my fatal flaw, Ralph Burns. Okay, custom Muslim. We're not a good creative agency. We're a data-driven agency and all the creative comes from clients. And so in order to really test that, you'd need somebody like you. But the other thing, and this will get really interesting, I actually think this is the future of all things digital marketing. Most agencies test like 10 ads or 10 ad sets even. I think what we really need to start talking about is a thousand. And the minute I say that, everybody's like, oh God, how am I going to create a thousand ad sets? But if you look at the way that AI works, it's a, it's a prompt. It's here are my 10 avatars, here are my 10 products, here are my 10 value propositions. Take all those, you know, 10 by 10 by 10, pump that into JetGBT and MidJourney, and it all comes out in an Airtable database. And now I have my 10,000 ads, and I'm going to plug this into the top of Performance Max. And when it comes out the bottom, I'll know what, well, and actually, interestingly, I won't know, but Performance Max will know what goes to who, what sells to who, et cetera, et cetera. And that could absolutely be the answer for sure. Because you said something interesting, and this is Tom. Tom, you will probably argue this as well, is you're like, targeting is the most important thing, which I do think targeting is important. But what we found is that creative creates the actual audiences because it identifies the avatars based upon the creative and the pains and the desires because you understand the avatar. The deeper you go into that creative, it creates your audiences for you. Even if you're like wide open targeting, like we have seen that like time in and time out, the thing that really differentiates, it's so much less so about like what interests that you use or what lookalike audience with a seed audience. It's so much about top end creative and what's that messaging because that identifies the avatar and then that creates the audiences and that creates your targeting. It's a really interesting point. Here's my counter. Wide open targeting, because in a lot of ways, you're, you're, you're right philosophically, but maybe not in practice. Here's what I mean. Wide open targeting for the media buyer feels like wide open targeting. It's not wide open targeting for the marketing mechanism, though. The marketing mechanism starts to test against this quote unquote wide open targeting until it sees what works and then applies a target. So just because you haven't applied a target doesn't mean that Google and Meta aren't applying a target. And I still think if targeting is not the most important, then it's the first of equals. Because in order to have the conversation, you need to first connect that pipe, me to you. I've got your eyeballs looking at the thing that I'm going to show you. And that thing is the creative. But before you can even see the creative, I've got to open up this pipe and turn the lights on. And that's the targeting. So I think Cosm's right about a thousand creatives. His approach is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> so saith Jude Law, Tom Selleck. <laughs> you know, it's Meta has their dynamic creative campaigns. And if you know to get to a thousand, that's ten headlines, ten pieces of body copy, and ten creative. That's a thousand right there. So it's not like you thousand as combinations, a thousand combinations, which is a thousand ads. And thinking about targeting being the most important, it is still the creative. I will die on this hill. <laughs> I know I had one ally it, here on this call. <laughs> it, but to think that it starts from scratch each time is totally incorrect. That machine learning is smart enough to analyze the creative, have predictions about it, and start running it towards a certain audience that is most likely to engage with it and either expand or contract from there. Like There's this idea that we all want more control or just maintain control. It is going away. 
I mean, it's clear from everybody with Performance Max, they're not going to stop doing Performance Max. They're going to keep pushing that. It's going to get but better. They, they just killed, what did they kill most recently? If, uh, it had to do with local ads. Oh, I think they're killing Discovery. I don't know what they're yeah. killing. But Google, yeah, they just keep taking away all the stuff I love. Google's like, yeah, and this is, I love it because I can actually use it. It's mine. I can I can hold it. And there's buttons and, and things that I can manage. And it's all turning into such a black box. You're absolutely right. Is that the one that's turning into demand gen? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, and Meta, you know, these advantage suite of things is taking away control and selling this idea that the algorithm is better anyway, which it is, giving enough fuel. It is or it will be on a long enough timeline. I don't think that can be argued. I think anybody who argues that they'd beat like a trillion dollar AI, it's just, it's a stupid argument. The question to ask though is, when we talk about better, it's like, well, who's KPI? Because whose best interest does Meta have at heart, mine or Meta's? So, and what is it getting better at doing? I think it's naive to think they aren't intertwined. I agree, but it used to be that you really could arbitrage. You had leverage. Like you could make very real money running paid ads in both Google and Meta. And what's happening fast is where Meta and Google sees margin. You know, it's the Jeff Bezos quote, your margin is my opportunity. They eat that margin. They're like, oh, making a ton of money in this industry. This is great. That traffic is now more expensive, sir. And they squeeze you all the way up until you're just happy enough not to quit. But we're not getting the 5,000x. Dude, we used to. You remember those days? Like, holy shit. You used to be able to mint money. But when they applied, it's, and it, honestly, it's, that's the inflection point too. That was the event horizon. As soon as they applied, it was Google Smart Shopping. As soon as they applied AI-driven media buy, the margin went to them. Google has minimum threshold for traffic when there's no competition. You could be the only human bidding on a key phrase, which in an auction, that means that that should be a penny, right? And it's not. You could still pay 30 bucks a click. Why? Because Google has these minimum thresholds. How are those set? Because Google knows what you make. So Google eats the margin. Facebook eats the margin. I mean, you're taking the what is in it for the brand and the media buyers and like, optimizing and being the only one doing this thing. That's not any advertising platform's goal. Theirs is optimizing customer experience and making sure that the best product and the best message- I don't think message, that's their goal. I think their goal is revenue. I think their goal is to maximize the value of their inventory. Oh, you're so crass. No, mate. How do they maximize their inventory? Having more people maximize on the Maximize the value of their inventory means they get the most money for the most amount of inventory over the longest period of time. How do they increase inventory? Well, this is where it gets interesting because now we talk about if you're maximizing the customer's experience, is a person's experience maximized by spending more time in meta? Yeah. In theory. No, meta, meta is improved. The human, I bet you there's data on this. I bet you suicide rates go up. Really? If we don't talk about like improving people's quality, like they don't care. That's not a KPI for them. They want to maximize the value of their inventory. And maybe do they want more inventory? Sure. But that also, I don't think really stems from the advertisers much at all outside of they just don't want to melt people with ads. Well, they want to show people ads that are relevant to them. That sure. doesn't hurt that. the customer experience. And Meta is saying that Instagram usage has increased 24%. By having reels is another data point that the customer experience has improved on Instagram, which means there's more inventory. Now it's in a different space. It's in reels, which they're saying like 30% of time is spent on reels. There's probably tons of inventory there now. Here's your blue ocean, since I know where seafarers are around here. 
it is crass to think that it is solely based off of a revenue target and not seeing that the revenue target is a trailing indicator for a better customer experience. Well, I think the revenue target, I'm not saying they're trying to go for a Q4 pop. I would accept that there's a sophistication behind long-term planning, but the long-term planning would still be based off of profitability. And that profitability planning is built into the fact that even though we saw a 20 or 30% increase in real traffic, my question is as well, why didn't that impact CPMs then? Because in any organic market with an increase in supply, you should see a decrease in pricing, right? Unless the demand is kept up with the supply, but it sounds like it's not because the very first tip we gave to perpetual traffic listeners was, hey, nobody else is doing this. And yet CPMs don't seem to have moved. Those who are using advantage placements, their CPMs drop. Yeah, that's interesting. And that'll be a question to see whether or not that changes as more people move to advantage. That is an interesting point, actually, is that, and we saw this, and I think in our last review, is I haven't empirically proven this, but like CPMs have decreased on Meta. Oh my God, they actually have. It's because of a lot of these tools overall. Like this was, believe it or not, I, that is counterintuitive because we always sort of say on this show, CPMs continue to de- increase no matter what. Ad costs aren't getting any cheaper. Well, there was a chart that we were shown that actually showed that, yes, CPMs actually have decreased. And I wonder if it Which is... Which makes sense based off of what Tom's saying. Exactly. There's more inventory. Exactly. Yeah. Because of Advantage Plus and now Reels is a new... Literally, like like that's a whole other inventory supply, which has almost unlimited opportunity, at least for right now. And well, but then the question is, does Meta end up eating the margin? It's too early to tell. It's hard My to guess say. is yes. Tom says no. Yeah, I think we continue down this loss of control. I like these. I hope I haven't made you uncomfortable, dude. I like oh. I like an honest fight, and you're you're I, a fun well, person to grapple with. I love fighting. I mean, arguing, debating. The question is: is to you, Let's the listener of perpetual <laughs> traffic, do you actually enjoy these guys sparring with each other? Which I find very amusing. But getting back to the Meta Performance Marketing Summit, and I know I'm probably actually saying the wrong, because this is really all about agencies here. There was one final component, which I know is really important, which is data quality. And we've talked about conversions API and the importance of that. But what were the insights there from the summit that or the takeaways that you sort of had to, to come away from? From the summit with. Yeah, you know, for me, it starts a little bit before that. You're talking about our quarterly review with Meta, and our partner manager showed us our conversions API integration across our clients, and we're at like 85 or 90%. So we're like feeling good about ourselves. But then she showed us the next bar graph, which is data quality. So even though we have super strong implementation of CAPI across our clients, the data quality, we were below what they would consider a good threshold. And that is solely driven by the EMQ scores. So event match quality, which is basically, is the pixel and the conversion side data matching and at what rate? So they're moving past this CAPI talking point really for people who already have that implemented more towards this strong first party data that is raising the EMQs. Now, whether a higher EMQ drives more marketing outcome, I think is a little bit fuzzy. But the idea is you want to have this leading indicator of having more first party, high quality data going back to not just Meta, but all the ad platforms. And I know that's something and we are working very hard on solving. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big component 
to it. I mean, I do think that, and if, follow us on this because this is important. If you're a Facebook advertiser, a meta advertiser, conversions API, we can leave links in the show notes. If you don't know what the heck that is, uh, you need to get up to speed on it relatively quickly. But the next level of that is enhancing those EMQ scores even more so, which is basically, all right, I land, I'm a visitor, I land on your page, I fire the page view event. It's how effective that event is at firing and then getting back into Ads Manager to be able to produce a virtuous cycle of action, feed the algorithm, action, feed the algorithm. And that's really what EMQ is. It's matching how many times that event is actually fired and fed back into the algorithm. And I do think that Conversions API assists with that. But we've always had the question of, hey, if I have a higher EMQ score, how does it relate to performance? Does that help the algorithm find my audiences better? Does it help the algorithm to optimize for purchase events in a website conversion campaign better? And I think the jury has been out on that for quite some time for me and you. And now we are testing a third-party software, which actually is showing tangible benefits and tangible increases in EMQ. Question is, is is that going to relate over to performance? Is it going to enhance performance as a result of that? And it's interesting that this was a big point in the conference. Yeah. And... You know, it's something that we have started to test on the tier 11 marketing, this app that we're working with a company on. And it's increased our EMQs by between 40 and 100%, depending on the event. It's huge. Which is massive. And massive. It, it, it took ours over the threshold of Meta's data quality number, whatever. But yeah, so that's part of the thing. You get a little bit deeper into MMM, so the mixed media modeling, which I still have not grokked completely yet. I don't know if anybody has. And then they have another thing that they're really pushing is like this measurement 360, which is utilizing all of these different sources to make smarter decisions. So whether that's in-app, third-party attribution tools, Google Analytics, like taking all that together to make assumptions and take insights and then use that for an empirical testing model. So testing is a big part of this as well. Like here's what I've seen, here's what we should do next. Did it work? Did it not work? How much was modeling touched on in this whole discussion of measurement? Because that's one of the things that we have discussed here on the show is like, all right, well, they know the events are firing no matter what, whether or not somebody opts in or opts out of the ATT prop. The, the data is still there somewhere, or at least we suspect. But was there much talk about modeling at all in this conference? Not too much. They did actually say that the Advantage Shopping Campaigns is a completely different model that was trained on, which is separate. And so it's able to get out of the learning phase a lot faster. So it talks about that. It talked a bit about the mixed media modeling, more so how bigger clients or bigger brands are using it instead of looking at it at a year-over-year basis. People are starting to look at it in shorter time frames and making decisions from that. But they didn't get too much into the algorithmic side of... And for those of you who don't know what MMM is, we'll leave links in the show notes where we actually did a show specifically on this with Austin from, from Northbeam, which I thought was actually a pretty good episode. So a much deeper... These are 
big brands that are usually doing that level of tracking. But point is, is tracking and data, like your algorithm is only as good as how much data is being fed back into the algorithm. And it's interesting that, you know, in this conference, there was a big section on that and how to actually improve it. Maybe even the adoption of, did they talk about third-party tools being utilized or recommended at all or no? There was no mention of that. No. Interesting. Not really. Yeah. Super cool. The last section of this, which I know you took some really good notes on, is creative diversification. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, kind of going back to what Cosm was talking about earlier about thousands and thousands of ads. I think something that we as creatives have struggled with a lot of the diversification of creatives. We have a tendency to think of like small changes being the thing that's going to be diversified, but that's really not what they are suggesting. And we see this as well. And that is your diversification kind of comes down to a few different elements. One is changing the messaging. So whether that's within the ad or within the copy, then you start to get into visual diversification. So the type of person that might be seeing this, does that person look like them? Other ways of showing the problems and solutions that you're solving really putting a lot of different creative content out there that looks different, sounds different, and has different placements in mind. Hmm. It's not like tiny little changes on one message, is what you're saying. Like wholesale changes, completely different messaging from a, like a three pillars sort of standpoint, which we do in the creative strategy framework, but really having diversity of message. So you're hitting large, well, wouldn't even say large, but different swaths of individuals which may or may not respond to certain aspects of your product and or service. Yeah, and it's really, if you think about it in terms of Meta's perspective, it gives them a lot more flexibility to show the right image or video to the right person at the right time in the right situation. And if those Google guys would get on the stick, they would do the same sort of thing, but they're not very creative. They're just data data nerds. Data nerds. Just data nerds. Just like, you know, yeah. punching buttons all day. So anyway. Bean counters. Bean, bean counters. <laughs> See, there you go. See, like our partner manager will love that, that I gave a dig on the uh, Google side of the equation here. Custom, you're just yeah. like the punching bag for today's I doubt no man, Ralph. But, uh, I know. I know. I'll pay the price in two weeks when I see you in Cancun when you kick me off the catamaran. But anyway, Tom, this has been great with the update here. We will obviously leave lots of links in the show notes. We... Not able to show you any of the inside photos of this thing because just for privacy concerns for Meta, but we really, really wanted to. Maybe we'll get the okay to do it and show it here as B-roll inside the YouTube channel. But definitely check out whether or not Tom looks more like Tom Selleck or Jude Law. Jude Law, that other guy. Maybe Tom Law. Oh, maybe to Tom Law. Tom Law <laughs> over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube. Definitely check that out there. If not, you know, just to see Tom's shirt for today because it's quite outstanding and stark contrast to me and me and Cosm and uh, matching black. So make sure that you do leave a rating wherever you're listening. We've got a couple of ratings which we're gonna we're gonna rattle off in next week's episode, Cosm, because they're actually quite humorous. So subscribe and leave a rating, whether it's positive or negative. Hopefully positive. We're trying to up our level here in the show today it was a little bit more high level, but I think it's important to be in the weeds for some of the episodes that we've done recently, but also to take a step back, think about from a 30,000 foot view, if you're a meta advertiser, these are a lot of the things that are coming down the line. You might not see them right here today, but 
just the reels tidbit here. If you're not creating content in and around that platform, like you're missing out on a whole segment of audience that could potentially scale and grow your business. So thanks for all the takeaways here today, Tom, for coming back on the show as a regular guest. Make sure that you let us know what we can do better over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. Follow me on LinkedIn, but really follow Perpetual Traffic on all our socials. We're everywhere. We produce, uh, I don't know, 100 some odd pieces of content every single week. Obviously, Kasim on all his socials at Kasim Aslam. The digital philosopher is what I think you are. No, that's that's what you are. Go back and listen. I know that's not a compliment, it, Ross. It is. Absolutely. Go back and listen to previous episodes and make sure that you do uh, check us out over at YouTube. Like I said before, all resources and show notes are over at perpetualtraffic.com. On behalf of my awesome co-host, Kasim Aslam. Peace. Until next show, see ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic, 